so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. All right, Lindsay, we just need you to wrap up your section. That's yeah. what we're waiting for. I was done. No, right you didn't do your, oh, Josh and Brent, it's now, that's oh, your look word. at this week at the ERLC.com where all the resources are available to live an amazing Christian life. Can you make that the special outro this week? <laughs> amazing Christian life, you'd get in trouble. Life, life. life. Oh, I thought you said to be an amazing Christian wife. Gosh. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the studio today are my co-hosts, my amazing, faithful, awesome co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. You are getting so much better in your descriptions, so thank you very much. Uh, hello from a just a very interesting week around here at the ERLC. <laughs> It's been a bit of a whirlwind the last couple weeks. That is well said. And also with us in the studio today is my real-life doppelganger, Brent Leatherwood. See, I feel like as your accolades have risen, mine have taken a nosedive. I mean, now he's making it sound like I'm his twin brother. Why? Wait, what's the story behind that? Why are you his real-life doppelganger? Well, Brent and I have been confused in real life by multiple multiple times. Which is, you know. <laughs> well, to be fair, other members of our team who look nothing like us, one who is, you know, was trying out to be a Navy SEAL and the other one who's, I don't know, what is he, six foot He's six? He's practically a giant. Uh, <laughs> have also been <laughs> confused. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, uh, just quickly, this weekend at a wedding that that we will be talking about in a little bit, my husband mistook <laughs> Brent here for um for someone one of the other staff members' husbands who has a big beard, an awesome beard. Uh, but Brent doesn't have a beard. I know you can't see him right now. Also, he's about six five or so. Um, and Brent is not. So <laughs> There's other ways to describe my height. That uh, wasn't a knock on your height. Not, well, this not, is, not six five is is certainly true. That's uh, not that's not a knock on your height. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Great, can you tell our audience hello? Your green got commandeered. Well, I was just gonna say, uh, hello to our audience, uh, officially now from the the post Russell Moore era. <laughs> Why do you have to start that way? That's terrible. This is this is the reality that we live in. Oh. So you know, here we here we are. Here we are. It's still the RLC podcast. It's still your favorite fun-loving bunch of trio. That's right. That's right. right. Well, look, man, I'm proudly wearing my RLC shirt today, and we are in our, you know, RLC decked out studio and just grateful to God to be here. Two weeks from the SBC annual meeting. Two weeks from the SBC annual meeting. 14,000 of our closest friends are descending upon Music City. Some of our closest friends will be there. Yes. (laughs) 
Okay. And we got to move on. People have left us right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're um, not listening to us anymore. Well, good, good luck to Mark, who's our uh, audio producer, to uh, to make something out of this mess. But anyway, Lindsay, tell us, please, what has the ERLC been talking about this week? So even though we are in a post-Russell Moore era here at the ERLC, we are still doing the important work of the ERLC. And the articles that I'm highlighting today show that and demonstrate that. So the first one that we have is by Jordan Wooten, and it's an explainer about the Supreme Court taking up a case titled Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And this is one of the most important cases regarding uh, pro-life issues that the Supreme Court has taken up in a while. And it should be especially encouraging to those of us as Christians who care about the issue of life uh, and preborn children's lives because uh, President Biden just recently removed the Hyde Amendment from his 2022 proposed budget. So that can be discouraging, but there are encouraging things. And like Jordan said, currently there are more than 40 abortion-related cases working their way through the courts, but one in particular out of Mississippi is a case that is deserving of attention. So the Supreme Court will revisit this decision in the Dobbs case, and it's going to review a Mississippi law that would replace the viability standard with a limit on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And as Jordan continues to write, it could have significant implications for some of the central pillars of legal abortion in the United States. And one of those landmark cases that you think about is Roe v. Wade. So this could mean big things for the future of the pro-life movement and the lives of thousands upon thousands of unborn babies. So Christians should pay attention to this and continue to pray. Next up, we have an article by Jason Thacker titled, Should the Government Regulate Social Media? Florida's New Social Media Bill and the Crisis of Online Governance. On Monday, May 24th, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a new bill into law regulating content moderation and online governance in the state on social media platforms. The bill is the first state bill to become law on these issues. So Jason goes on to describe what is in this bill that's regulating social media. How should we think about it? How should we think about censorship on big tech, on, on companies like Facebook, uh, Twitter, and other places that are privately owned, even Amazon. So the bill has drawn criticism from people on various uh, places along the ideological spectrum. And uh, you'll have to read on in Jason's article. Uh, he gives reasoning about what he thinks about it. Uh, is it okay? Should we be okay with our government seeking to regulate big tech in this way? And what is the role of the government in seeking the common good. While Christians will land in various places, Jason's article is a great starting point. I, I will uh, give you a heads up. It is a long article, so you probably want to set aside a little bit of time to read it and wade through it, but we're thankful to have Jason on staff to be able to help us understand these important issues. And then finally, we've got an article by Catherine Parks. It is another explainer about pro-life issues, which are near and dear to our heart here at the ERLC. So we talked about this particular issue last week in the culture section with Brent, but because Catherine has written an explainer on this issue, and it's all in one place here uh, in the midst of our resources on ERLC.com, I thought it would be helpful to highlight again, one, as a way to encourage you about the work that's happening in the pro-life sphere, 
And number two, just so you could have a place to reference this development and other developments like it. So I'm just going to read from the beginning of this article. On May 25th, the City Council of Lebanon, Ohio, voted to ban abortion in its city limits. By a vote of 6-0, to zero, the council approved a measure that immediately outlawed abortion and declared the abortion pill to be contraband, which is just amazing and something we should celebrate. And she goes on to explain how the bill came about, what it entails, different reactions to the bill, And at the very end, she links to the Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn Initiative that reports other cities in Ohio that are in the process of attempting to pass similar measures. So this is certainly something that we, again, can be encouraged by as Christians and that we can continue to pray for, that we could hope and pray for a day when every city in America is a sanctuary city for the unborn, but certainly in the church we can be a sanctuary for the unborn, ready and eager to welcome those faced with unplanned pregnancies in a way that encourages them to choose life for their unborn child and assures them that we will walk with them and the child the whole way through the pregnancy and beyond. Well, hey, I'm going to pick up on that very first article, Jordan's explainer, about the importance of the Dobbs case. And what I liked about it is he picked up on a thread that uh, we had actually talked about uh, as a as a staff with the recent introduction of the president's budget blueprint. You know, understandably, there were some people frustrated by that uh, because the Biden administration, uh, in their budget that they released, it had no uh, Hyde Amendment protections. And, uh, you know, this is something that that Joe Biden has been uh, signaling since he was a candidate, uh, that, that he is no longer supportive of Hyde Amendment restrictions uh, on taxpayer resources. And so Jordan just kind of quickly laid that out and, and you know, made the case that, look, at the end of the day, that, that's certainly something that is lamentable for us as, as pro-life Christians and, and pro-life activists. Uh, but at the end of the day, that, that's largely just a messaging document. Biden has said he was going to do it, and he did it. At the end of the day, Hyde, the Hyde Amendment, and other pro-life writers, those are the domain of Congress. Uh, so the White House, at the end of the day, just like other White House budgets in the past, this one's probably just going to be politely put in a drawer while Congress uh, works through uh, its 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 budget process. And so where uh, pro-life activists and committed pro-life Christians need to be absolutely resolute is, uh, again, encouraging Congress to respect the pro-life writers that have been a part of our budget precedents uh, over the last, well, better part of the last 50 years. But this Dobbs case, it, it's been around for a while. A number of us have been waiting for the court to act upon it and to, to grant it cert uh, so that it can be uh, orally argued in, in front of the court. And I'm, I'm thankful that they have finally taken that action. And I'm, I'm really thankful that there's a, a justice like Amy Coney Barrett, who is now a part uh, of the majority uh, while this case is, is going through the system. Look, I think that's really, really helpful, Brent. And as we're looking at, I mean, Lindsay, you, you kind of covered the, the gamut on uh, things related to abortion and, and pro-life uh, concerns. And so, uh, obviously, we are asking Christians to pray for this upcoming Supreme Court decision uh, as uh, a good way to think about it would be that this is the possibility for us to see some major, major progress uh, at the uh, federal 
judiciary level, like coming from the Supreme Court, this is a chance for us to see some major, major gains. Uh, but it's also a possibility that we could see a pretty significant setback here. And so this is a thing uh, for Christians to be absolutely praying for, that God and his providence would deliver a ruling that is not just favorable to our side, but favorable, as you said, Lindsay, to the millions and millions of yet-to-be-born children for whom this would this means the difference between life and death. Well, as always, Josh and Brent, thank you so much for your clarifying comments. Again, as I always mention, we have so many more articles and resources free of charge on our site to help educate and equip you on these important matters. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to the culture section for the week. So Brent, tell us what's going on in the world. Well, as Lindsay mentioned earlier, uh, it certainly has been a uh, a big week for us at the RLC, and and we will get to to that story uh, here in a moment. But we started off this week uh, by marking uh, 100 years since um, well a massacre occurred here in America in Oklahoma. So Baptist Press has a story that kind of starts like this: as many as 300 Black Americans were killed and 35 blocks of Black-owned homes and businesses were burned down in the North Tulsa neighborhood of Greenwood during a two-day period from May 31st to June 1st, 1921. More than 10,000 residents were displaced. It was one of the worst incidents of racial violence in U.S. history. The BP story goes on to talk about how there are a number of churches, including Southern Baptist churches, uh, that are leading in efforts to memorialize this this dark chapter in American history. And so the story goes on to spotlight Darren Spoo, who is a pastor of one of the churches in the area, and it says this, Spoo, who had studied the history of the massacre, was intentional in trying to ensure it was remembered this year in hopes of carving a fresh path toward racial reconciliation. He was among area pastors of Southern Baptist and other churches who began planning faith-based events related to racial reconciliation more than a year ago. In February, First Baptist Tulsa opened the Tulsa Race Massacre Prayer Room for 121 days ahead of the horrific anniversary. It provided a location for intensive prayer. The story goes on to talk through a number of other ways uh, that churches are are leading in these efforts. Uh, I should note that uh, President Joe Biden made a special visit to the Greenwood area uh, to to mark the moment and and pledge uh, a new way forward for America in terms of, of racial unity. And I just thought the reason I'm starting off here and highlighting this is it's just another reminder of the ways and often unseen ways that churches are truly leading out in the effort to achieve uh, racial unity, not not only in in cultural terms, but ethnic unity, as we are called to in the Bible. That's so good, Brent. And I can't tell you how many uh, different white Christians uh, that I'm friends with, even SBC pastors and others commenting, uh, as stories came out marking the 100-year anniversary of this not only tragic, but honestly horrific event. Uh, Because for so many of us, this was something that has uh, kind of been lost to history. It was totally unknown. And there's a reason for that. So, you know, we we talk all the time, we deal with issues related to to racism and and racial tension and strife. And, um, you know, we, we try to reckon honestly with our country's 
past. And so uh, when it comes to something like this, we understand that this happened 100 years ago. This happened uh, during the era of Jim Crow. This happened uh, at a time or following this event. Uh, and the New York Times Daily Podcast uh, did a really, really good deep dive on this. And I would recommend people, if you're really interested in this, and you, you have time to just listen to a quick podcast, go back and find that one. It was really, really helpful. But immediately following this event, where as many as 300 black persons died, as a result of what, what is honestly and rightfully called a massacre. Uh, it wasn't called a massacre then. It was called a riot. And because it was called a riot, that was used to uh, by insurance companies to refuse to fund the claims that were made by these Black Americans in the wake of having their homes and businesses burned to the ground. The stories, uh, the, the history of this event was told mostly through the mouths of children because there was serious uh, and, and pretty radical efforts to suppress uh, the truth about what happened here. And the, the, the media coverage, uh, even at the time, the you know, contemporaneous coverage focused on the fact that, that two whites died as a result uh, of this event, as opposed to the fact that almost 300 black people died during this massacre. And so it, it's one of those things that as we look at and reckon honestly with the history of our country, it is grievous. It's sad that this is a story that we almost never knew. And I'm thankful that we can hear uh, this story and that we can see it for what it is. Because the truth is, uh, all of us, our heart here at the URLC uh, and our heart as Christians is to, to live in a nation where the dignity of all people is recognized, upheld, and defended, and never in threat or question. We hear often from all sides, people say those who refuse to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. This is an important lesson to learn, to take stock of, and to remember. And what's a what's amazing about this massacre is not a single person, not a single one of the perpetrators, ever faced charges or criminal prosecution out of this. And it was, it was a. I mean, let's just be honest. It was a white mob that descended upon this uh, area and burned it to the ground. And this was a, a highly influential uh, financial center in, in Black American life. As a matter of fact, the area that they burned was, was called Black Wall Street uh, because of a number of thriving businesses uh, that were there. And, and so, uh, I mean, this is how we are still reckoning uh, with just some of the, the darker moments that have occurred in American life. I certainly can't add anything to what y'all have said. It's just absolutely tragic moment for us as a country. Um, I did want to mention and point listeners to an article on the Gospel Coalition by Joe Carter. If you search Tulsa Race Massacre, he he gives nine things that you should know. And sadly, I really didn't know much. And so I'm thankful for different resources that we've been able to um, highlight today to be able to educate us about this so that, like Josh said, we wouldn't repeat history and that the Lord would use um, the truth of things that have happened in the past to form in our hearts a greater commitment to the sanctity of every single human life. But it just is amazing to me that this was mostly forgotten for half a century. When you look at this article, you'll also be able to see one of the survivors, Viola Fletcher, a video of her. She celebrated her 107th birthday when this video was taken, and she was testifying in Washington, D.C., which I'm sure was really powerful to experience in person. Elsewhere, as the calendar turned to the 1st of June, that meant that in culture, it 
marked the annual beginning of Pride Month. And uh, if uh, if if you have eyes to see or ears to hear uh, in our audience, you probably can't help but notice uh, all of the the corporate. Uh, entities out there that have switched over their their branding or have put up advertisements pointing out that it is uh, Pride Month. And so there's a story here in the USA Today that just talks about the origins of Pride Month. And it, it begins by this. For decades, Pride Month has been celebrated in June across the United States. Festivities, parades, and events have been thrown to honor LGBTQ voices and experiences, but also to draw attention to the issues that members of the community still face. Though 2020 brought most traditional pride festivals to a halt due to the COVID-19 pandemic, some states are easing back into in-person and virtual events this year. And for the history of the event, it asked this, why do we celebrate it in June? Well, it reports it all started with the Stonewall Uprising in New York on June 28, 1969, following a police invasion of a gay club located in Greenwich Village. Uh, Riots and protests ensued throughout the city. Uh, so from that, uh, the culture has adopted uh, this particular month as one to celebrate Pride Month. And so, uh, Josh, I, I would ask you, uh, this is there's a number of, of things that we're paying attention to um, this month uh, at the ERLC uh, that, that, ironically enough, coincide with uh, culture's marking of Pride Month. Yeah, Brent, this is such an interesting thing because – for for us as Christians, I think Pride Month has kind of been the thing that for many, many years, uh, looking backwards, it has just kind of gone unnoticed. But in the last several years, we have uh, we have seen the celebration and absolute like cultural uh, enthrallment with Pride Month grow and grow louder and louder to the place that it, it is no longer something we can simply ignore or look away from. And coinciding with Pride Month, I mean, one of the biggest things that ERLC has been working on this year is, and, and really for multiple years now, is combating uh, what is called the the so-called Equality Act, you know, this bill that would for permanently, through uh, federal legislation, write gender identity protections and sex and protections for sexual orientation into the federal statutes that are what we think of right now as the the 1964 Civil Rights Act where we uh, it would make these designations protected classes and the reason that that's so bad is that what that would do is through federal law begin to punish those to bring the full weight of government to bear against those who are not on board with the sexual revolution who have not chosen to redefine what marriage is or what the human person is or what human sexuality is. And so, you know, as we are thinking about Pride Month as Christians, uh, one of the things that we want to say is while we we just said it uh, about black people, and we can say the same thing about all people, we want to live in a world where the dignity of all people is esteemed, uh, where no person is, is uh, mocked or maligned or marginalized uh, because of some characteristic or trait about them. And at the same time, uh, we want to say as Christians very clearly, I mean, the whole idea of pride, you cannot celebrate what God hates. And as Christians, we are not free to redefine marriage, gender, sexuality, human anthropology. God is not only the creator, he is the ruler of all that exists. And he gets to tell us how we live our lives and how our lives should be ordered. And that doesn't just apply to Christians. It applies to everyone. And so for us as Christians, I think it's really important that we not just kind of let this month go by because realize that our, our children are growing up in a world where the rainbow no longer represents God's covenant, but represents uh, rebellion against God's design. And so 
parents need to be thinking about this. Pastors need to be thinking about this. Christians need to be thinking about this because uh, we need to be prepared not only to tell the world truth in the face of the world's lies, but we also need to be prepared to receive those who will be refugees of this sexual revolution because it cannot keep its promises. And so I just think it's important for us uh, to just spend a second talking about and thinking about uh, even this subject because while I think we want to be absolutely clear that you can do two things at the same time. You can speak truth without hate. You can love people without affirming error. And I think as Christians, that is so important for us to embrace and to understand. Once again, Josh, so helpful, such helpful statements. It is, it's just a confusing and a hard time that we live in, not only for ourselves as individual believers, but those of us too who are raising children and, um, thinking about how to disciple them, how to teach them from a young age, um, not knowing what they can quite understand yet, uh, thinking about what they will encounter as little kids in their classes as this sexual revolution continues to present us with really complex situations that challenge us to live out grace and truth in the same breath constantly, like Josh said, loving every individual and affirming their their sanctity as human beings created in God's image and affirming the fact that God has extended an invitation to them, to everyone, to come and find forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And at the same time, affirming that we are not free to choose how we want to live, that we have an authority, we have a creator, we have the Word of God that tells us um, the things that He has said about gender, marriage, sexuality, what He has said about homosexuality, and that those things are good for us and lead to our flourishing, the things that God has affirmed in His Word. So anyway, um, my husband and I were talking the other day about how the sexual revolution is so prevalent right now, during, especially during Pride Month, in every channel that we watch, even, even kids' shows. And, you know, we it's easy for us to be outraged about that. But what we have to realize is you want to see a revolution take place, you peddle it through mainstream media because things start to become normalized. So once again, it provides us with an opportunity to be able to talk to our family members, talk to our children. And that's why one of one of our missions here at the ERLC is to educate and equip. We constantly say educate and equip Christians to be able to think biblically and Christianly about these things and then live it out distinctly so that we can be uh, salt and light in this culture. Overseas, some, some big news broke on Thursday morning of this week in the country of Israel. So, uh, some of our listeners may be aware that they are in the midst of uh, an attempt to form for <laughs> now several times after multiple elections there, uh, trying to form a coalition government. Well, it appears that it, it finally has succeeded. And in the process, it will mean the end of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's term as prime minister of Israel. So uh, there are several good resources on this. Uh, I first would commend to you uh, the dispatch uh, did an incredible rundown on Thursday morning of kind of the lay of the land in Israel. And at the same time, Politico produced a piece looking at what this new coalition government and the uh, incoming prime minister will mean for American relations with Israel and in the broader Middle East. 
From that piece, it says, Netanyahu will essentially be replaced by a more extreme, though much less politically savvy, version of himself. At 49, an untested and ambitious Neftali Bennett, the first Orthodox prime minister and a former aide to Netanyahu, will have to keep his fervent annexationist convictions and implacable opposition to Palestinian statehood under control. His new coalition government will be weighed down and checked by opposing factions that may constrain, but not eliminate, uh, the right-wing impulses of the prime minister and his conservative partners. So what's really interesting here is that Bennett has had to form a coalition with folks that honestly are fairly opposed uh, to what his party uh, believes. And to add to the intrigue, does it mention in the story, he's a former aide to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, so certainly uh, the, the makeup of leadership uh, in, in Israel uh, is, is changing. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, the Middle East is, is a, a constant source of uh, intrigue uh, for Americans and in particular American Christians, uh, this is this is going to be a very interesting new chapter. And uh, you know, following any sort of parliamentary government, but uh, but especially this one, uh, is going to be fascinating uh, for the uh, political scientists among us. Yeah, Brett, we were talking before the podcast started, uh, before we started recording today, about how many people in our audience would know uh, the name of any political figures in Israel besides uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. And now they know at least two. So there's that. I mean, one of the interesting things is because, like you said, a lot of particularly American uh, evangelicals and, and Christians pay a lot of attention to what is going on in Israel. And they have a government that is very different than our own government. I mean, they're, they're, they have multiple parties uh, where we have a two-party system and their government is formed uh, through these coalitions, which is just something that, that we don't really have uh, a parallel structure to. And so this is obviously big news and it's something to, uh, you know, we, we will see what happens. But obviously, I mean, they, they have, as you mentioned, this is a enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Okay. And finally, moving to uh, the big story from this week, as we mentioned, uh, and, you know, not to make light of it, uh, but we are now in the transition period here at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore uh, has has departed as as president of our organization and uh, will will be uh, beginning his new position uh, with Christianity Today in in July. And so, obviously, we're we're very excited about that uh, for Dr. Moore and uh, expect uh, great things from him there. In the wake of his departure, there have been news stories written about uh, his exit. One of those appeared in Religion News Service uh, this week, and ostensibly it centered on a letter that Russell Moore had written and uh, sent to the executive committee of our trustee board, ostensibly to thank them uh, for um, continuing to stand strong and the aftermath of an investigation that was launched in February of 2020. So, uh, to put this in perspective, the, the letter was written a year and a half ago, uh, and it is it is just now surfacing. It came from um, an anonymous uh, trustee on our board, according to the report. And uh, the so the report says this. In a letter written more than a year before his resignation, Moore explained his troubles with the SBC's leadership in bitterly frank terms. Uh, and Donald Trump, who parenthetically is 
been the source of some criticism uh, for Dr. Moore's uh, statements against him, uh, hardly made an appearance. The root of his friction was not his opposition to Trump, Moore said, but the stands Moore had taken on the SBC's race and sexual abuse issues, which had raised hackles with, quote, a small minority that Moore does not name, but can be identified as key conservatives and members of the denomination's uh, governing executive committee. The more than 4,000-word letter, which was leaked by an ERLC trustee on Saturday, sheds light on Moore's reasons for resigning his position and outlines the personal pressures Moore had been under from SBC leaders. Uh, so this has uh, caused quite a stir uh, within uh, the SBC and within kind of uh, online Christian Twitter. There's been a, a number of folks that have been talking about this report. But in one particularly tough area to read, Dr. Moore's letter concentrates in, in two main areas, uh, sexual abuse and, and race uh, relations. And he talks about the challenges that he faced there. And in particular, the one on race is a fairly difficult one to read because it deals with one of our colleagues that we've worked with and what she faced. So in the report, it states this. But he, Dr. Moore, said others took issue with his hiring of black staff at the RLC and advocating for the convention to elect a black president. Moore relates how an SBC leader questioned certain hires at the RLC, whom the leader viewed as insufficiently Baptist. Quote, when I answered his concerns to his face, he said, I was really just concerned about that black girl whether she's an egalitarian, referring to the hire of Trillia Newbell to the RLC and questioning her commitment to the SBC's complementarian gender theology. Continuing with the letter, quote, when I asked what possibly could lead him to think that a woman who has written complementarian articles for complementarian websites was an egalitarian, he responded, a lot of those black girls are, more recalled in the letter. So, uh, needless to say, uh, you know this this letter was a private letter. Uh, it was it was shared with uh, just a handful of our uh, com trustee committee's uh, leadership board. To read about it in such a public forum was it was challenging for a number of members of our team, and certainly for for someone like Trillia, who you know used to be one of our colleagues, and, and now she's she's moved on to to doing other things with uh, with Moody. I can only imagine it was uh, not something that she was expecting. And um, I just think that, you know, this surfaces uh, a lot of the internal resistance uh, that we have had to face, uh, both Dr. Moore personally and, and us as an organization, as, as we have sought to equip the church on issues of racial unity and, and how to achieve that in a, in a true biblical fashion. Those comments are really just tough to listen to. Even just you reading that from from the article is um, painful. And I can only imagine poor Trillia going about her business and then sees this come <laughs> online and people start talking about it. And uh, thankfully, Trillia is grounded in the Lord. That is where she finds her identity and her joy. And she had lots of people on social media rallying around her, not to mention those in person as well. I love the statement that she made on Twitter, and then she later shared it on uh, Instagram as well. 
And she says, uh, she types this out and says, me, minding my own business, doing the good work the Lord planned for me. Them, revealing their racism because I'm a black girl, in quotes, cough, I'm a grown woman. Me, keep on doing the good work the Lord planned for me. I've experienced racism my entire life. Not going to stop me now. (laughs) And that truly is, uh, truly is attitude. And, you know, it's just reprehensible and it's unexcusable and it needs to be dealt with. That racism and that sexual abuse would be contentious issues within uh, within the, not just the SBC leadership, but among any Christian is just, there are no words for it. It shouldn't be the case. We should, once again, stand for the dignity of all people and treating uh, people with the love of Christ because they are made in God's image, and we should protect them from exploitation. We should protect the vulnerable from being preyed upon. We should hold abusers accountable. So I, this has been a painful week for us. I pray that the Lord would use this to bring about a transformation and uh, repentance, a refining that needs to take place among Christians and within the church and within the SBC. We can only pray that God would just have mercy on us and purify us from this sin, honestly. You know, there are times when being a follower of Jesus is easy and delightful, and there are times where following Jesus really does look like acting completely against impulse and instinct, or and sometimes self-interest. The human response, the carnal response that I have to hearing those words, Brent, as you just read them out loud once again, just rage absolute disgust and the human side of me wants to you know wants to challenge someone to a fist fight instead of turn to the lord in prayer and turn to the lord uh in repentance the sbc is a big tent and it is by god's grace a very imperfect denomination that has been used for immense good in the world there is room in the sbc for southern baptists who consider themselves to be super conservative on the fundamentalist end of the spectrum, there is room in the SBC for Southern Baptists who consider themselves to be proudly evangelical. There's room for white churches. There's room for black churches. There's room for Asian churches. There's room for Hispanic churches. There's room for blended churches. There's room for modern churches, contemporary churches, traditional churches. There is room, not only in the body of Christ, but in the Southern Baptist Convention for all kinds of Christians and all kinds of churches. But there is no room for racism. There is no room for this kind of godless, anti-Christian spirit that allows anyone in any room at any level to malign, stab in the back, and act in any number of other godless and wicked ways. This is not an ends justify the means situation. And as I was sitting there reading this again last night, holding my black daughter in my lap and thinking about the fact that she is right now a Southern Baptist. She's a part of this denomination and growing up in one of its many, many great churches. I was disgusted and enraged once again. So it breaks my heart, honestly, that the world has to see the ugly side of people who bear the name of Christ, attach themselves to Jesus and trade off his credibility. It makes me so sad. But for those who want to Inside look at what it's been like. It's right there in the words of that letter, and you can see it because it is posted on the internet for anybody who wants to read it. Well, and and to I mean, as Doctor Moore says 
in that letter, this is a relatively small group of people. That's right. This does not represent the vast majority of Southern Baptists who are out there doing incredible ministry work that affirms God's goodness and actively displays how to bear one another's burdens. And that is that is the great lament uh, of of this moment is that there is a small group of these individuals that are very loud on social media that are making uh, life so difficult for the rest of us who are are just truly trying to live as if the gospel is completely one hundred percent true, <laughs> trying to go tell everyone else about it. And um, and so that's what's frustrating about it. But you're right, Josh. In a couple of weeks, it's SBC annual meeting. And I, there's a very clear choice here. Do we want to have our steps and uh, our voices uh, controlled by this uh, small group? Uh, or do we want to tell them, hey, that, that's actually not the way that we do things. Uh, here in, in the Southern Baptist Convention, I suspect it's it's going to be the latter. Um, but we need folks to to show up and send that message loudly and clearly that we will not stand up for this. This doesn't honor the Lord, and it certainly doesn't further His church. And that's what we need to be about. That's so so right, Brent. And one of the things that I would say, just to people listening to this, is look, uh, racism is not as overt today as it as it used to be. We don't have whites only signs anymore. Uh, people don't wear their racism on their sleeve proudly, but I think it's a general maxim that is very true. When somebody shows you who, who they are, believe them. And so, you know, there's a lot of, well, did they really mean that? Or was it really said this way? Or was it, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and the truth is, we're not talking about things that are ambiguous. We're talking about repeated, very clear, and sometimes very malicious patterns by a small group of people but that group of people uh, is, well, they're in search of power. And to quote Lindsey Graham, I pray they never get it. All right. Well, um, that's only four stories, but uh, we, we got quite a bit out of that. So that is your look, Lindsey and Josh, at This Week in Culture. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. As you can imagine, we've been talking quite a bit, so we'll try to pare it down. But Lindsey, what is on your mind this week? So I was editing a piece by an author that Jared Kennedy had sent us that's going to go up on our site uh, either next week or the week after. I can't remember. But I wanted to highlight her. The author is Hannah Hall. And I realized just as I was looking it up, she's a children's book author. And she's written a piece about teaching children the faith. But she talks about how we need to utilize stories and fun stories to teach kids about the Lord and about truth. And I didn't even realize that I actually have one of her books that I read to my daughter, and she loves it. It's called God Bless You and Good Night. And she has this whole series of books, God Bless You books. But she has this book called uh, Penguin and Moose that's one of, that's a best-selling book and has made her a best-selling author. She has also, as I've looked this up, written some books that have to do with the What's in the Bible series by the creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, and uh, talks about um, God made the animals, is God my friend, um, God made me uh, with Buck Denver and some other people that are a part of the What's in the Bible series. So I just wanted to highlight her and her work uh, so that as she talks about in this article that's coming up, 
we can redeem these things and use stories to show our children that our God is real and that He is good and that He's a God of laughter and of joy and of creativity. Um, He's a God of fun um, and that the world isn't the place to find all these things, that our God is the place where we can find these things and find um, great joy in Him. So in our show notes, there'll be a link to her Amazon author page where you can find a lot of the resources that she has put out there. Lindsay, that's super good and helpful. I'm going to take us in a totally different direction and say that, look, one of the coolest band names I've ever heard in my life uh, was this band called I Wrestled a Bear Once. I don't think their music was good. I definitely don't think it was Christian. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. So I'm not endorsing that. But there is a woman, in fact, a teenage girl who can now tell that story about having wrestled a bear once because there was this video that was floating around on social media, you know, doing its viral thing. And I just thought it was fascinating because you see these dogs barking as this giant bear. And then I think, I guess, two bear cubs are on this wall about to go into their property. And the dogs are barking and attacking the bear. And the bear just reaches down with one of its its paws and just slaps the dog in the face and the biggest dog in the pack runs away. And then there's these other, I think two small dogs that are yapping at the, at the bear. And then you just see this woman run out. And I assumed it was a grown woman, but no, I think like, I think the story is this was a teenage girl who runs over to the bear and pushes it down over the wall and then grabs her dogs and runs back inside. But even as she's trying to get the last dog, who's still doing, you know, just yapping, uh, the bear comes back and she runs back inside. But anyway, how courageous Literally, this girl wrestled a bear. And so uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. But if you haven't seen it, it is worth watching. Bragging rights for the rest of her life. No kidding. No kidding. She should get at the band t-shirt that says, I wrestled a bear once. Yes, she should. (laughs) All right. Well, since we uh, talked all about the SBC annual meeting, it would probably be helpful to point people to a resource so that they know what to do when they're here. So thankfully, we have sbcannualmeeting.net. Uh, And it lists all the events as well as the actual uh, business portions of the SBC annual meeting. But just a few to highlight. Uh, Sunday night, June 13th at 7 p.m. will be the North American Mission Board SEND conference. Definitely uh, go to that. Uh, Beginning on Monday, uh, there will be the SEND luncheon that will occur at 11.40 a.m., the SEND conference will continue Monday morning, and then they'll close that with the, the SEND luncheon itself. And then later that evening, there will be the National African American Fellowship Dinner, and then the SBC Women's Leadership Network uh, event that will occur uh, later on Monday night as well. There, I mean, honestly, that's just a handful uh, of the events that you can go to while you are here in Nashville for the annual meeting. And so this is a, a great resource. Uh, definitely go ahead. If if you, if hey, we would love to see you, right? Wouldn't we? If you're coming to Nashville, come say hi to Josh. Come say hi to Lindsay. Come say hello to me if you feel like it. I mean, please come by for sure. Then, uh, uh, <laughs> we will forgive you if you confuse Brent and I. That's uh, true. No big deal. You can take a picture with both of us so you can know that we are two different people. And then be in the room. Right. That's, I feel like we say this every year, but decisions are made by those who are in the room and uh, make sure that you are in for all of the, uh, the voting sessions uh, for business that actually does take place here at this uh, annual meeting. Totally agree, Brent. And that's going to do it for the show today. We do want to invite you to come hang out with us in Nashville at the SBC. It is going to be a big family reunion. It's going to be raucous. It's going to be, well, something to see. And so we'd love for you to stop by the URC booth. And like Brent said, be in the room where it happens. Uh, Register as a messenger so that you can come from your church and make your voice heard. We would be honored and 
thrilled to stand beside you in two weeks in Nashville. Uh, but for today, we just want to say thanks so much for listening. And especially right now, we appreciate your prayers and for hanging with us during this season of transition. Uh, we love doing the show and hanging out with you each week. And so we just want to say a special thanks to Mrs. Megan Mayo, who is now uh, on vacation on her honeymoon as she is. She's a, it's a real vacation, Lindsay. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah, it's a real vacation. And they are out in uh, California this week celebrating. And uh, we are just thrilled for her and for her husband, Eric, uh, who both of whom are, well, Eric is a former colleague, Megan and obviously as a current colleague. Uh, we are also grateful for Mark Owens, who is our audio producer, and Marie Delph, who is uh, Lynn's technical support to the podcast. And we are just excited to be back with you next week with more content. Mm-hmm.